0: Log Talk Radio. What if I were to tell you that the King James Bible is full of flaws? Not just one or two, but many of them. That's coming up next right here on The Parker J. Cole Show. welcome to the parker j cole show i'm your host the queen parker j thank you so much for joining me today we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host secretary today doug woodward he is the author of the book we're going to highlight today called rebooting the bible the astonishing story of a 1900 year old rabbinical conspiracy to corrupt the bible's ancient history and thwart belief in jesus as the messiah there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot to this series, too, because this book is simply part one of a three-book series of booty the Bible, but today we're going to focus on many things, and one of those things we're going to focus on is flaws versus inerrancy, manuscripts versus agendas, and conspiracy versus conservation. It's all going to make sense in just a few moments. As always, I want to thank you for your support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for 10 years. As God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash stuff. As always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net. Click that pink follow button. You'll never miss a show. Without further ado, I'm going to bring Doug on board. Doug, how you doing?
1: Hey, Parker J. Cole. It's good to be with you. Thanks again for the invitation.
0: And thank you so much. I was really excited to talk to you about this book. We were supposed to talk about it back in 2019. And, <laughs> and Dear Listener was so funny because he's been on the show since then. But Dear right. Listener, when I was cleaning up my house, probably for the first time in years, I found this book and it was still in the packaging. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is Doug's book. He sent to me. And when I looked at the post this day, I was just so embarrassed. <laughs> I said,
1: well, I said,
0: you know, better late than
1: never, right? really and
0: particularly for a time such as this where the bible is coming under attack people are losing Mm -hmm. faith or people are gaining faith for that matter it kind of goes in flux there's a lot going on and we want to be good at our discipleship now before the broadcast i talked about the kjv which is king james version of the bible i talked about being full of flaws and some of you may have already hung up on me as soon as i said that but we're going to qualify our position here and so I can't wait to dig into that in a moment. But Doug, go ahead and let people know what makes you so good about this topic?
1: <laughs> well, it's uh it's an area that I've studied pretty uh intensely now for about five or six years and I've written, um, yeah, a lot of text, about over well over a thousand pages related to it and um, and it's been a, a really good strong seller in terms of catching the attention of folks and so forth. But uh, I guess, you know, it was, um, I had focused on prophecy and, uh, and, a, and a book on Mars and some other things, you know, for quite a long time. But um, I got very interested in this subject when I ran across uh, a gentleman named Barry Setterfield, who was an astrophysicist, but he also had written extensively on the manuscript known as the Septuagint. Uh, which briefly was a Bible, a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek almost 300 years before Jesus was born. And, uh, and so Barry had talked about the Septuagint, talked about the chronology, talked about the, the the different things in it that really were conflicting with what's known as the Masoretic text, which is the text upon which the King James Bible is based primarily. And, uh, and so when I came across that, it just opened my eyes to a lot of issues that I thought, wow, this really requires some study. And goodness, if I think about all my colleagues that write about Bible prophecy and things like that, they, they really don't know about any of this. And so, um, you know, let alone the folks that read their books. So I thought this is an area that I really need to, to drill down on and really focus on because it's just a, it's an area that just isn't talked about. And when you dig into it, you understand why it is so important because of the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, which actually leads back to this issue of why there are flaws in the King James Version, at least especially the Old Testament. And so... Anyway, that's kind of why I dug into it, and, and I guess that's why uh, <laughs> I I have some association with the topic.
0: I know for myself, my listeners are going to say, but Parker, you say all the time that you love the King James Version of the Bible, and I do, and I always will, and I particularly remem- memorize scripture in KJV because I just love the lyrical prose of it. Let not your heart be troubled sounds so much better than the messages, don't worry, <laughs> so um, it's a stylistic thing, but I have never been a KJV onlyer. I always have been open to more, better translations of the scriptures. I thank the Lord for that. But for some people who are KJV onlyers, this may be a major blow to your worldview. Rest assured, we're not saying pick up your KJV Bible and throw it into the trash. We're just saying that you need to make some considerations about KJV, its flaws, but you also want to know about its strengths. And at the end of the day, we still want to talk about its inerrancy. There's a lot going on here. We're just going to dig right into it. So in your introduction, you spent quite a bit of time telling people why this is important. So what are just three of the major points that the KJV Bible, which was based off the Masoretic text, is important for us to understand that there are flaws?
1: Well, I think it it boils down primarily to the issue of Uh, You know, what is the the testimony regarding Jesus and whether or not he is the fulfillment of the prophecies related to being the Messiah. And so a lot of things flow from that. But if we recognize, for instance, that um, there are arguments against the validity of Christianity because of certain things that are based on um, the translation of the King James Version, Um, The way that certain prophecies are stated um, or, you know, the way that the chronology is stated in the King James Bible and whether or not there really is any sort of historical backing for that. These are, uh, you know, these are issues that have to be thought through. Um, And so anyway, that's uh, that's a big factor. Um, So I think it gets down to the defense of the Bible and the defense specifically of uh, the best argument for why Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and what makes him the Messiah. And so uh, anyway, so I think those are probably the important things. At the end of the day, we don't really want to just defend a version of the Bible. We want to defend the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And that's the I think that's the thing we have to center ourselves on.
0: And this becomes the topic of inerrancy. So let's give a definition of what inerrancy is.
1: Well, of course, inerrancy means without errors, and the uh, there's, of course, always been a lot of debate about whether the Bible makes errors or makes mistakes. The, the, the traditional, conventional, evangelical position, the conservative position, is that the uh, Bible is inerrant without errors in the original autographs. That means in the compositions themselves with when David wrote the Psalms or when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which he was, I believe, the essential editor or essential writer of that, um, once you uh, go into that, you have to realize that, that the, the Bible is, is without flaw, right? So it's at, that, um, it's at that level. It's at the level of the autographs, the compositions. And the of course, the compositions are written a long time ago. Moses would have written um you know the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, about two thousand let's see almost three thousand five hundred years ago. and so that's a long time and of course, the Bible goes through a lot of a lot of uh, transitions and uh, uh, translations since that time. and so we try to look back and try to find the most authentic, the most, um, you know, the, the best uh, uh, text manuscript support that we can find, and this is where the Septuagint begins to come into play. And again, the Septuagint was a Hebrew, it was a translation of the Hebrew Bible in around 280 B.C., and it was actually taking the compilation of the Old Testament that um, the, the priest and leader Ezra created around 420 BC. And so it's not that long from his original compilation of all of the prophets and the histories and the Pentateuch and so forth. It's only about 140 years from, from that time until the Greek was written. And so the chances are very good that what Ezra compiled Uh, in fact, is captured um, meticulously in the Greek translation. And uh, as we get into what happened to the Hebrew Bible 400 years later, it becomes important to see why the Greek translation really is vital if we're going to get an accurate picture of what was originally written.
0: So you were talking about the Septuagint. You correlated with the Old Testament. So I really want people to understand exactly what we're talking about because there's a lot of terms here, and in rebooting the Bible, you go into it deeply. If you can give us the cliff notes, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which would have been the Old Testament, from 350 B.C.?
1: About about 300 years before Jesus. Uh, 280 B.C. is when the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those books, uh, and then also um, afterwards the the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of uh, of Ruth. Those books were probably all translated very much around the same time, around 280 to 250 BC. Now, over the next 120 years, the other books were translated. And it was about by 130-135 B.C. that the complete Septuagint had been translated, and some of it actually was written for the first time in Greek, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, um, which we might be familiar with as part of the Apocrypha. Um, that, was, that was in that time frame. But by uh, 100 and, let's say, 150 years before Jesus began to teach, the Greek translation was complete, and it turns out that 80% or more, perhaps as much as 90% of the quotations of the New Testament, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it is quoting the Greek translation, the Septuagint, and not the Hebrew. And so that's the, that's the story and the importance of the Septuagint. The other issue, though, is what happened to the Hebrew text The Hebrew text, which is known primarily as the Masoretic text, um, that was in process of being changed. It was gathered together by formerly the Pharisees that became the rabbis around 100 to 120 A.D., roughly 400 years after the Septuagint had been translated. The Hebrew Bible was assembled by them but it was changed. Many of the verses were changed, specifically those verses pertaining to who the Messiah was, what was his mission or goal, and how would he bring salvation to the people of God. And those were specifically the verses that were changed, and those then lead to what we're talking about when we say the errors in the King James Old Testament. And another quick point of perspective. If we understand that the Greek version was what was being quoted by the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, if we understand that they were quoting the Septuagint, uh, it's important because then we see that those things that are in the New Testament, those quotations, they differ from the Hebrew in the Old Testament that they were quoting from because the Hebrew had shifted. It was being it had been changed by the rabbis. And so consequently the Old Testament in the King James and the New Testament in the King James don't agree with each other. And that people may have noticed that when sometimes they read quotes and they go back from the New Testament, look at the Old Testament quotation, and they say, Wait a second, there's a difference there. That that's not what it says. Well, the reason that there's a difference is because it was altered by the rabbis, the Pharisees, in the first and second century AD. And that is the that's the real crux of this whole story. Not just the Messianic prophecies, but also importantly, the chronology that's talked about in Genesis five and Genesis eleven. The chronology that really is put there so that we understand the pathway from Adam all the way to Christ and why Christ was the promised redeemer, and, and his lineage, his genetics basically flowed from um, the trail from Adam through Abraham, through uh, Mary uh, into the you know the the bloodline, the DNA of Jesus himself.
0: What's fascinating about this topic it leads to my second point about this book manuscript and agenda. And so you went through a very concise summary of what readers will expect when they pick up their copy of rebooting the Bible. But you also let us know that there is an agenda with making changes to the text and making changes to the Bible. This becomes important because it shows my third point about conspiracy versus conservation. And conspiracy means that there are factions at work conspiring together. To bring about a certain agenda but conservation is that no matter the conspiracy the actual message of the Bible still remains that Jesus is the son of God that he did die to save us from our sins that he is the Messiah that he is God one thing you say in the introduction is that you're not trying to say throw out your King James version of the Bible you're not saying that but you're saying too that the Holy Spirit works to conserve
1: his word the Christian faith is based essentially on the Bible. Now, the Catholics would say it's based also on tradition, and, you know, they're not entirely wrong about that, but the, the Protestant view is that the Word of God comes to us through the Bible, through the Scriptures, all right? And so if we see that as the basis of our faith, then, you know, it's preservation. Uh, it's, uh, you know, for us, the ability to identify what was actually said originally by the author's, that becomes critical to what specifically we believe. And uh, it's not secondary, it's primary. And so we, we have to understand that. And then the conspiracy issue, it's important to recognize that the context of all this is that the, the Jews were, uh, of course, they were under assault. And by assault, they were basically, uh, their temple had been destroyed. Um, let me turn off this thing here. Um, all right, sorry about that. I don't know why that was doing that. But anyway, all right, going back, the Jews were under assault because the Romans uh, were, had destroyed their temple. And with that, they had destroyed the fundamental basis of their religion. Uh, because it was based upon the temple, ritual, ritual sacrifice, and so forth. But the temple was gone, and so around 100 to 120 uh, A.D., the former Pharisees that had uh, dubbed themselves now rabbis or sages, they determined that they had to recreate the Jewish religion. It could no longer be based upon ritual because there was no temple for them to do so. And so they created what we could call the oral law, the Mishnah, and they wrote it down. And they said that the Mishnah, the oral law, I won't try to get too deep here, but it's that it was actually also given to Moses and it, it flowed through Ezra and so forth. But it opened up a different revelation. The revelation for them was the oral law, and it superseded the written law. Most uh, Most folks aren't. Aren't familiar with the fact that the Jew, that the Jewishness or the Jewish religion that we all know today is rabbinical Judaism, and it is different from the Judaism of the Old Testament, and uh, and so the conspiracy is that the Jews were seeing that the Christian evangelists in the first century were converting huge numbers of Jews to the Christian faith. Their temple had been destroyed. Their religion was being destroyed. Their land was being destroyed. And so they had to do something to try to preserve their, their culture and, importantly to them, their religion. And so what they decided to do was alter key verses in the Old Testament, and this is the conspiracy, and to change the core issues that the Christian evangelists were preaching that jesus was divine that he came from god that he was was god they had to change his mission his mission in the septuagint it's clear that he is coming to bring the gentiles into the people of god the people of god are no longer just the jews but they are potentially all people Um, that jesus's mission is to do that and then thirdly the, the Jews would emphasize the law as the means of salvation, but in the Septuagint, we read verses that tell us that salvation comes through the name of Jesus, trusting in that name. It's not the following the law, but it's rather believing in Jesus and in the grace and the salvation that he provides that gives us salvation. And so these are radical differences from the the Judaism that was created, again, in this sort of first and second century uh, after the temple had been destroyed in 70 AD.
0: One thing about the conspiracy versus conservation aspect of this discussion is that we show that there's the injection of the supernatural, meaning that the Holy Spirit is working to conserve his message despite the machinations of men. And so I think that's an important part of the conversation. The other part is the identity and faith. Right now in current society, we see our faith and identity as separate, that they don't correlate. But for the, these Jews from back in the day, they were very much a part of their identity. I'm Jewish because of my beliefs. My beliefs are not separate from my identity. This is why you have so much confusion right now in the church. But I could understand why they would do certain things because they were, their faith was just as ingrained into who they were as people and i think that's something we need to take into account too
1: right right and they felt they felt threatened and they were under assault and felt like that their religion was uh, was going to be uh overthrown as well and so they had to strike at the heart of the position of the christians and uh, and try to push back on that and that is that is essentially what they did in the way that they reworded a number of the scriptures not many but probably less than Oh, 100, 150 verses in the Old Testament. Again, messianic passages and then the two uh, chronologies uh, of Genesis 5, which was from Adam to, to Abraham, um, and then, for, or excuse me, from Adam to, uh, to Moses and his, excuse me, to Noah and his son. Um, and then the second part, uh, eleven chapter 11 of Genesis, really takes us then from Shem all the way down to Abraham. And, uh, and so these things were changed, and we may or may not have time to go into it, but essentially uh, 1,500 years was cut out of the chronology uh, of the Old Testament. And when that happens, all of a sudden it makes the Bible's chronology and history different than what uh, science and what archaeology and so forth has has shown us regarding the age of the Egyptian empire, the age of the Mesopotamian civilization, and so forth. If we go back to the chronology of the Septuagint, which was one of the things that was changed, all of a sudden the Bible begins to line up with um, the academics today in terms of what they teach about the, time, the timing of the Egyptian uh, civilization, the Mesopotamian civilization, and so forth. So it becomes a real key factor and in helping us to understand that our Bible doesn't uh, conflict with what uh, archaeology is showing. And uh, that's something that, again, we get if we understand the Septuagint, but we don't get if we rely solely upon the Masoretic text and specifically then the King James Bible.
0: One thing you mentioned as you were talking about this, I want to make sure that our listeners know, there is no anti-Semitic thought in this book at all. Mm, You're just really just stating the facts as you've researched them. We're not going to go through the whole book. We're going to go through what's really important to our conversation, go into the creation of the Alexandria Septuagint. This is just
1: a quick history lesson that I think everyone will benefit from. Alexandria is a city that is incredibly important to Christianity uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of the ones, of course, is the fact that the that the Septuagint was created. Now, Alexander the Great and uh, his general Ptolemy, which starts off with a P, by the way. <laughs> it's not P. Ptolemy, but it's Ptolemy. Um, they were, he became the pharaoh. Uh, Ptolemy became the pharaoh. And um, the sec- his he was named Soter, uh, S-O-T-E-R, and then he was uh, Ptolemy I. Ptolemy II was known as Philadelphus. That was his son. Uh, the I basically ordered a, he wanted a copy of the Hebrew law, and he wanted that for the library in Alexandria. Library in Alexandria was, was an amazing institution. Um, I could go into great depth about it, but all I'll say is that all of the ancient wisdom of the ancient world was stored there. And there were books of laws from different civilizations. But the Hebrew law, which was the Pentateuch, was not there yet. And also in Alexandria, there was about a third of the population were Jewish. For various reasons over the past oh, three or four centuries before this point in time, uh, many Jews had settled in Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, and so um, Alexander, uh, in his conquering of Egypt, was around 328. So we're talking only about four decades later after the city was founded, that the Septuagint was commanded to be translated uh, from the Hebrew into Greek, and it was facilitated by the request of uh, the Pharaoh, Ptolemy I, to the priests in uh, Jerusalem to send uh, experts. Now there's a long story that's talked about in the letter of Aristaeus that goes into detail that probably is somewhat legendary and mythical. But nevertheless, the, the truth is very obvious that, that there were experts that knew Hebrew and they also knew Greek and they were able to create a, um, a translation that held uh, up extremely well in terms of the accuracy and, and rendering what was, the way that the Jewish language would say certain things. But perhaps more importantly for us are the facts that they, they created in terms of the, the language of the uh, prophecy specifically and then the dates and so forth that are uh, provided in the chronologies. And uh, so anyway, that's where and why the Septuagint was created. Uh, again, uh, starting to be created around 280 B.C., and then was finished about 135 B.C., all right? And again, that became uh, all of the books of the Old Testament plus the Apocrypha, um, and those existed by that point in time.
0: The library of Alexandria is one of the seven wonders of the world. We don't have it today because it was destroyed. Well, it was
1: destroyed, actually, you know, in the Civil War with uh, between... Uh, Julius Caesar and uh, uh, and one of his uh, rivals uh, Pompey or Pompey and uh, and it was uh, burned probably around forty five B C and so uh, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar we have them to blame uh, probably for the fire that that destroyed the library in Alexandria for the most part so uh, an interesting bit of history there.
0: It would be wonderful to see what it looked like back then. And those things are lost to the annals of time. But the Lord does say that our knowledge will fade away, but his word will stand forever. I think that's of significance to mention that. In the second chapter of Rebooting the Bible, we go into the war, the Jewish wars. And these wars are significant to the biblical translation because this is about what's going on with the Septuagint. So the chapter is called Rabbi Akiba, the Bar Kokhba Revolt, and the Septuagint Attack Begins. So go ahead and tell us what's going on here.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a bit of history that, that most folks, even folks that uh, know about the the war in the first century that led to the destruction of the temple, most folks don't know that there really were three Jewish wars, and that uh, the Jews were actually the arch enemy of the Romans for oh, the better part of a hundred years, I could say, really uh, beginning uh, early in the or in the middle of the uh, first century, and leading up to the destruction of the temple. And then there was another war known as the Kitos War, which was around 119 A.D. And uh, this was uh, a war that was fought predominantly outside of uh, Judea, outside of Judea, but involved Jewish settlements around the Mediterranean, and it was a particularly vicious war. Then the third war is known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which occurred around 135 to 138 AD, and there's a lot to talk about there, but essentially the Rabbi Akiva was the leader that uh, helped to, uh, I guess you could say, facilitate or bring about The the new Hebrew Bible, it's known, you know, technically by as proto-Masoretic, but the Masoretic text was really launched at that time, and it's the, the text that we've been talking about that becomes the basis for all the Protestant Bibles as well as the Catholic Bible, not the Orthodox Bible, because the Orthodox, such as the Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, all of that, that's based on the Septuagint because they've never gone away from the Septuagint as their, as their Bible. But the Masoretic text, at that time, uh, Rabbi Akiva believed that um, Bar, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba was the Messiah because he was a mighty warrior and he was defeating the Romans in many battles. And so he fit the profile that the Jewish leaders believed the Messiah would be which was someone who had conquered the Gentiles and established the Jews as physically as the rulers of the world, and um, and so uh, this was defeated, of course, in that time frame. Uh, both Bar Kokhba and Rabbi Akiba were shipped off to Rome, where ultimately they were uh, they were basically killed, uh, you know, by the Romans uh, as punishment for inciting this uh, tremendously vicious war. And it's at that point where Jerusalem essentially is destroyed and becomes uh, Eliana uh, Capitolina um, and uh, becomes you know, no longer, it's no longer Judea, it becomes known as Palestina or Palestine, uh, which really was a reference to the Jewish enemy, the Philistines, and so it was meant to be a grand insult to, uh, to the Jewish culture and the Jewish people.
0: Fascinatingly enough, the Christians will also become a thorn in the Roman Emperors in the Roman Empire's side mm-hmm. because they just would not bow to Nero. They were in the center of a Caesar cult, as one person said it, and Caesar was God and they said, No, he is not and they will also become a thorn in the side of the Romans, but through that they spread the gospel throughout the world. And so I just wanted to add that in there because he's talking about all this history. Yeah. All this history is the stuff that's not in the bible because a lot of stuff you have to look outside of it to just understand what's going on during this time period because it also helps increase our understanding of various texts in the bible just so we have a better clarification of various things so there's a lot going on here and there
1: became mm -hmm. i was going to say it became very difficult to be a Christian and live in Jerusalem, <laughs> because of the of the Jewish leaders who were persecuting the Christians, uh, as well as the Romans who ultimately would destroy the the Jewish people and the Jewish culture. And of course, Jesus had predicted that, and that's why so many Christians flee, fled Jerusalem uh, around sixty six sixty seven A.D. Uh, just shortly before the Romans actually attacked uh, Jerusalem. Jesus had said, when you see, you know, the armies encircling Jerusalem, you need to basically flee and don't stop to pick up your coat. You need to go. <laughs> and they did. And uh, many fled. But, it, again, all of this was a way of pushing the Christians to go around the world to begin to preach the gospel and to, again, the, the goal here is bring the Gentiles into the people of God. people of God are no longer just the Jews, but they are also now those Gentiles who believe in the name of Jesus.
0: One thing is that you have to understand the hotbed of culture clashing here and belief systems and faith. So just like we have this hot culture wars today, it was the same. Just different ideologies are at play here. And if you want to really understand the context, imagine just all this craziness going on where people are on one side of this, one side of that, just clashing, pulsing together. It's a hotbed of a lot of conflict here. And Jesus walks right in to all this conflict. And he doesn't do it it during the peacetime. He does it during one of the most conflict-prone areas of our history here. And so you mentioned about how the whole point was to bring the Gentiles to the Lord. And this goes to the next part of our discussion that we are take some time to go through because you spent a lot of time saying that there were flaws in the KJV version of the Bible. But now, as you say here, introducing hard evidence. This is chapter four. Tampering with the text, comparing the Septuagint with the Masoretic text. You say here, our study makes some severe allegations sure to spur disagreement, consternation, and condemnation from many quarters of Christendom and Judaism. Are these allegations provable? Is the evidence plain enough to justify the claims that rabbinical schools at the end of the first century intentionally corrupted what became of the Masoretic text? Should such corruption cause concern that our Bibles have been severely altered? Do these variances introduced in the Old Testament really matter? This author, Doug, claims the evidence is unassailable, and it does make a difference. So, now the time has come to introduce the hard evidence backing up this claim. It's also time for the Protestant Christians to reclaim the Septuagint as our preeminent historical text. Our Bibles must take the Septuagint into account with deference to many, if not most, of its readings. And so now we're going to go through a few of these texts here, and you're going to highlight the difference. So what I would like for you to do before we go into which texts have been altered, I want you to explain the mythology that you use to illustrate this.
1: Okay. Well, let's see. In terms of methodology, essentially what I did was I said, "Well, let's look at, um, let's look at the way that the uh, Bible is translated today in one of the more popular and well uh, thought of versions, which is the the English Standard, the ESV. Uh, let's look at that as presenting um, the the current English understanding of the New Testament, right?" And specifically the quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament, all right then the second thing we look at is the Septuagint, the English translation of the Septuagint, and here I use Breton's translation into English of the Greek Old Testament from eighteen fifty one Now there are many more now newer uh translations that have been done since two thousand seven. And the recent one I would recommend is around 2019. But nevertheless, that's the second thing, is let's look at what did the Septuagint say. And then thirdly, what did the King James Version say in these same verses? And how does the wording differ there? And does it support the Septuagint? Uh, Does it support what the New Testament says? Or is there a difference? All right. And so I look at, two dozen different verses and uh, probably a dozen of them are really strong, and probably the other dozen aren't quite as strong, but still carry out sort of the same, same point. And so, uh, yeah, so we can look at a number of verses and, and point that out if you'd like.
0: So what I want to do, I'm going to choose some that I felt like, eh. And I won't lie. Someone's I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> not that big of a deal for me, right? And I know some of my other readers, when you pick up your copy, you may have the same response because you're like, the content isn't that big of a deal. And there's just some places where I kind of, even, and Doug knows, I'm, I'll tell him this. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. But the ones that really matter really do have to do with the Messiah. And those are much more glaringly apparent. And I think those are worth looking into as well. So you can look at this and compare it yourself. So we're going to look at a couple of these verses here. So we're going to highlight the differences between Matthew 13, 15 with Isaiah 6:10. Now, these are verses that echo each other from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're going to read it in the ESV. I'll read it in the ESV, and I'll read it in the, in the KJV um, version, and then we'll go with the Septuagint. Okay, so that's how I do it. And then, Doug, you can kind of say, why is this a big deal? Okay, okay? So or, we'll do or that why it's not as
1: big a deal as some of the others that we'll talk about.
0: Right, right. Or just your commentary like you have here. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at Matthew thirteen fifteen. In the ESV, it says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, it's going to go back to KJV in um, Isaiah, which is paralleling this verse here. Make the heart of this people fat and make their eyes heavy and shut their eyes. Let Let they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Now, the Septuagint says this. For the heart of this people has become gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted, and I shall hear them. Now, if you look really closely at this chart, the Septuagint and the ESV are more closely aligned with each other than the KJV. So go ahead and expand on why this passage is important to this topic about altered text.
1: Yeah, okay, well, I think it's in, there are passages, and this would be an example where the emphasis of the words that are used, um, perhaps in this section, in this, in this verse, the, uh, the insult towards the Jews and their lack of understanding is probably more pronounced in the Septuagint than it is in the Masoretic text, meaning that the Masoretic text uh, those that were putting it together did not want to be seen as so dull of hearing. Uh, yeah, they didn't hear well, but uh, <laughs> in the Septuagint, it's more clearly spelled out that they, you know, just as Jesus was saying that the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, they missed it. You know, they should have heard, they should have understood that it was the time of their visitation but they didn't. They were, their ears were very dull. They were blind. And, and so the Septuagint in this example is a bit stronger in the way that it's worded towards the the leaders of the, uh, the Jewish people, and especially at the time that the Messiah comes.
0: The next one we're going to look at is Hebrews 10.5 and comparing it with Psalms 46. And Hebrews 10, 5, in the ESV says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. In the KJV, it says, sacrifice, I'm sorry, KJV, Psalms 40 and 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. And then the Septuagint says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou also did not return. Now, this one is more glaringly apparent that there is something vitally different between the KJV version and the ESV version. And this is one of those passages that is the most obvious deviation from the original text.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, this verse basically points out that that the Messiah is speaking here in the all the words of Psalm 40, verse six, and of course, David, um, when he writes these psalms, so many times, he is actually creating prophecies of uh, you know that would become in effect prophecies of the Messiah. Um, You know, we think about Psalm 22 and all the details about the crucifixion and how that was prefigured uh, in that psalm. Here it's talking specifically about the fact that sacrifice and offering really aren't what is going to cause uh, God to be, you know, to forgive us. And it's not what God necessarily really desired. Instead, he's prepared, the Messiah says, that a body has been prepared for me. Meaning that his body would become the, the the focus of the sacrifice, and instead of a body that thou hast prepared me in the Septuagint, the Masoretic text says, "Mine ears hast thou opened," <laughs> and it's it's radically different. It's not the same, and this is this is a prime example of uh, of the fact that the uh, the folks that were in effect compiling and sort of remanufacturing the Hebrew Old Testament, they were editing it pretty strongly. Um, they didn't believe that the Messiah would be God, that he would be coming in the flesh, and that it would be his body that would become the focus of the religion. The, that was the sacrifice, rather than animal sacrifices on the altar, uh, as the Jewish religion had been all since the time of, uh, of Moses.
0: And one of the, the last one I will highlight on because there's so many in here and I want to encourage you to pick up your copy of rebooting the Bible is from the comparison of Matthew 1.23 with Isaiah 7.14. And I actually found this one of great interest. The ESV says in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the Masoretic text, Text And it's not in the KJV, interestingly enough. It says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you make a note here. We are not using KJV here, but the Jewish Tanakh. 1917 for the Masoretic text. And the Septuagint says in Isaiah 714, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Now this is very vital here because this talks about the sinlessness of Christ here. So now this is attacking his his birth by changing the text from virgin to the young woman. Go ahead and expand on this for us.
1: Right. Yeah. It's uh. It's likely that the the King James uh folks that were doing the translation recognized how severe a uh, difference this would be uh, if they were to go with what the Jewish version in the Masoretic text was saying, which was young woman rather than a virgin shall conceive, because the virgin birth was critical to the Christian doctrine of the fact that Jesus was God coming in the flesh and, uh, and that he came through a virgin um, and therefore was not uh, basically entangled with the sin nature that all humankind is entangled with. And uh, so he was, he was sinless from his very birth and maintained that sinlessness throughout his life. Um, but uh, it's interesting that if we look at even, oh, uh, roughly let's say 80 years after the destruction of the temple, um, the um, um, one of the of the key apologists for uh, the Christian faith, Justin Martyr, um, he wrote in his book Dialogue with Trypho," who was a Jew. Uh, it was probably somewhat fictional, but yet somewhat based upon interactions that he had had with Jewish people. He gets into this specifically and talks about why would the prophet talk about a young woman? You know, why would that be special? Because all births come about through a young woman. So if the prophet was saying something, he had to be saying, behold, a virgin shall conceive, because that was unique. That was miraculous. And there was nothing miraculous Uh, about a young woman conceiving, that would not be a sign from the Lord. And so, and why would you call his name Emmanuel? And so it's sort of contradictory in that verse itself to conceive of any other wording other than a virgin shall conceive. So it's, uh, there's a lot to this, um, a lot of discussion and the differences in the Greek words and the uh, Hebrew words and so forth. But that's that's what's the essence of this one.
0: And there's a lot more where that came from. So, dear listener, I encourage you to pick up your copy of Rebooting the Bible, the astonishing story of a 1,900-year-old rabbinical conspiracy to corrupt the Bible's ancient history and thwart belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Go ahead, pick up your copy today. You won't be disappointed. There are free books in this series. You can get them all online by simply going to faith-happens.com. Again, faith-happens.com, and that's Doug's website where he has his research, blogs, interviews, and more, especially um, links to his books that you can buy online. So, Doug, I want to thank you so much for being with me on the show today. I really enjoyed having you.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. It's a a difficult subject, and it's kind of hard to do in an interview because the amount of information is just – it's mountainous, you know. And uh, and going through all of this, it's kind of, once you go through it all, you, you know, as most people <laughs> have told me, they're just sort of blown away. They've never heard about this before in any uh, of their church going. And, uh, and so, and it becomes, as I've said, that's the argument, it becomes vital to understanding how our faith and our Bible can be defended. Because so we have to understand that the original wording goes back to what was translated into the Septuagint. That's the closest wording to what was originally intended and inspired in the authors.
0: Doug, thank you once again for being with me on the show. Can't wait to have you back and have you back real soon.
1: Okay, well, very good. Well, thank you again for inviting me. It's always a good time when we get together and talk.
0: And we were talking today to Doug Woodward. He is the author of the book "Rebooting the Bible: The Astonishing Story of a 1900-Year Rabbinical Conspiracy to Corrupt the Bible's Ancient History and Sow Belief in Jesus as the Messiah." Were you titillated by some of the things that we said today? I encourage you to get your copy. You are going to learn so much when you delve into the Word of the Lord. And at the end of the day, the Lord still conserves His Word, so it doesn't matter the flaws, it doesn't matter the agenda, it doesn't matter. Of a conspiracy. What does matter is that the Holy Spirit works in the affairs of men to keep the context and content of his message the that Jesus Christ came to heal a sin-sick world. And you can find that all out today. Go ahead, pick up your copy of Rebooting the Bible, available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Parker J. Cole Show. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day. And God bless.